Hello, this is Volts, and I'm your host, David Roberts. The U.S. has hundreds of environmental rules and regulations on the books meant to achieve various environmental goals. Clean up coal plants, reduce toxins and consumer products, limit agricultural waste, and so on. Once these rules and regulations are put in place, most people don't give them a lot of thought. To the extent they do, they tend to believe two things. One, that environmental rules are generally followed, maybe, what, 3 to 5% break the rules? And two, that the answer to noncompliance is increased enforcement. According to Cynthia Giles, both those assumptions are dead wrong. Giles was the head of EPA's Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance for all eight years of Obama's presidency and had a long career in environmental enforcement before that, so she knows something about rules and enforcing them. Through the Harvard Environmental and Energy Law Program, where she is a guest fellow, Giles has been writing a series of pieces which will be issued as a book in 2022 on Next Generation Compliance, Environmental Regulation for the Modern Era. In those pieces, she reveals that environmental rule-breaking is absolutely rampant and that there's surprisingly little increased enforcement can do about it. Instead, the key is to design the rules better, such that compliance is the default choice. I'm a sucker for policy design, so I was eager to talk to Giles about what she's learned, how to design rules well, or poorly, and most of all, the best way to design climate rules. With no further ado, welcome, Cynthia, to Volts. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed your articles. Uh, I, I, <laughs> as I was uh, saying on Twitter earlier, I really love it when... Um, I discover an expert who's making like a really well-argued, well-cited argument on favor of something that I believe already <laughs> 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 and, and, and didn't have the chops to defend myself. I'm like, oh, this is delightful. Uh, I feel vindication. One of the things that, I mean, there's a, a number of sort of mind-blowing things in here, but one of uh, sort of the first, the initial mind-blowing thing is that I think people don't really understand very well is how often environmental rules and regulations are violated, just how common violation is, how common breaking the rule is. Um, you spent eight years as head of EPA enforcement uh, for Obama. I'm curious, before going into that position, did you know this about environmental rules or was this kind of like a, a, a cold water in the face kind of thing once you got in the, got in the office? Well, this is certainly something that I had strongly suspected for a long time. Uh, I've worked in the environmental enforcement arena for a long time, state level. I was a, a prosecutor, um, and I had persistently seen a mismatch between what I was seeing in the field and what I was hearing so many people say that they thought mm -hmm. compliance with environmental rules was good. Uh, so after I... Uh, started in my position in the Obama administration, I asked folks to pull together everything we know about how compliance is with environmental rules. And so I 
discovered uh, that the the evidence uh, supported what I had suspected all along, which is that the rate of violations is substantially higher uh, than most people think. Substantially higher. Yeah. What do we What do we mean by substantially higher? Like, give us a sense of the scale here. Well, I'll give you a, sort of the contrast between what's popularly believed and what the facts are. So. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I've spent my you know, most of my professional career in environmental and compliance-related um, work. And during that time, including during the Obama administration, I've asked a lot of people what they think the rate of noncompliance is with environmental laws. Just to mm. guess, what do they think? Uh, the most common answer I get, including from people who have also spent their entire professional careers working in this area, is 5 to 10%. That's what people think. It's nowhere near that. Not close. Uh, the rate of serious, not just any violations, serious violations, the ones we care about the most, is, the norm is 25% uh, Good Lord. In, in most programs. Um, there are plenty of programs, I'm sorry to tell you, with rates substantially worse than that. It's not rare to find serious violation rates in the 70 and higher oh, uh, range. I want to just make sure I'm clear. I'm not saying when, when I'm saying someone has, uh, you know, serious violations, I'm not saying they're violating every single thing every day, you know, 24 uh, seven, but they are having a lot of violations that we really care about uh, in terms of protecting people's health. So the rate is substantially worse uh, than most people think. And that's just the ones we know about. Uh, there's plenty of ones that where the, uh, the data is very thin uh, indications are bad, but the data is not there to say anything definitive about a rate. Right. And as you point out, you know, the consequences of this are not just, I mean, it's like a, a culture of rule breaking gets started. There's all sorts of bad things about common violation, but the sort of the central bad thing is just that we're not achieving the goals of these rules and regulations. <laughs> if you, right. if, if violations are 50%, you're, you're getting 50% of what you think you're getting out of the rule, right? Well, there's there's a lot of areas where we know there are environmental problems, like over 130 million people in the United States live in areas that don't meet the health standards for air quality. Right. Uh, more, you know, almost half of the waters in the United States are designated as poor quality. Um, so we, there's a lot of evidence about problems that were, uh, uh, you know, serious issues that affect people's health uh, that are widespread. And certainly this incredibly high rate of violations is a significant contributor to that. And so you, you know, you come into the EPA into this enforcement position and, and are basically inheriting a bunch of rules that you, <laughs> that you have to enforce. You know, you don't ha have a hand in designing them. So I'm just curious, as, as you point out, the other sort of intuitive belief people have about this is insofar as there are violations, insofar as people are breaking the rules, the, the solution to that is better enforcement, more enforcement. Right. So, so from your experience at EPA, if you have a rule and you find out that violations are, are fairly common, how much can you do with additional enforcement? How much can you sort of move the needle? Can you substantially increase compliance with enforcement or sort of what's the range of, of, of effect you can have? Well, that very much depends on the problem. Right. Um, so for some of the most 
serious uh, and high rates of violation. So coal-fired power plants is one example. I mean, that was the, that, you know, they, for many, many years, they were by far, by way far, uh, the, the highest uh, polluting sector. And the rates of violation were stunning. Um, for that problem, EPA decided correctly, uh, in my view, um, that the health risk was so substantial and the violation rate was so serious and egregious um, that EPA would just sue all the coal-fired power plants. <laughs> One at a time, they'd go after them um, because it was essential for public health that they be made to comply uh, right. and install modern pollution uh, controls, which, by the way, reduce pollution like 95%. I mean, we're not yes. talking minor differences. Okay? Right. It were really, really big. So for some of these problems, coal-fired powers won cities that were discharging raw sewage into surface waters around the country was another. Some of these problems were so serious from a public health perspective um, that EPA decided to, you know, go after them individually. That is not a strategy uh, that can work for the vast array of programs that EPA administers. So some sectors have a million or more regulated right. entities, uh, or it's very hard to tell who's violating. For those kinds of problems, enforcement as your first line of defense is obviously not going to be able to do it. And you don't have the resources to do it, but you couldn't do it even if you did nothing else but that one thing. Uh, so for many problems, uh, enforcement cannot be, can never be uh, the principal way of solving the noncompliance. Right. And even in those cases where enforcement does, can force compliance or broad compliance, it just is raising and raising and raising the cost of of the of the issue right of the of the regulation i mean every one of those lawsuits costs money and time and right. etc well coal-fired power is actually a terrific example so the the work to address pollu air pollution from coal-fired power plants has been going on now for more than 20 years and in every one of those years that has consumed a lot of people millions of dollars uh, of money for investigators and enforcement staff etc uh, so that kind of an approach is really uh, expensive. Sometimes it's worth it, like it was for that sector and like it was for cities and, and raw sewage. Uh, but most of the time, it's not a feasible strategy. Right. And it's hard not to look back at, at our history with coal-fired power plants and think that, you know, just some heavy-handed, super simple, <laughs> you know, mandate back in the 70s or whatever, however economically inefficient you might have argued it was, it's definitely not going to be so inefficient that it costs as much as, as suing every coal plant for for 20 years, right? Yeah, that's not a <laughs> – I don't think anyone would sit down and say, here's our plan. Um, we're going to just sue them all individually. <laughs> right. uh, uh, you know, that is not to mention the expense. Um, you don't get the benefits until the cases are over and right. the company installs the. So you have a 5, 10, 15 year delay in mm. the public health benefits. So for both of those reasons, it is it is certainly not a sensible uh, strategy. Plus, I mean, if you take another example, uh, you know, that's a that's top of mind today, oil and gas wells and pollution from those. There's over a million wells in in the United States, mm. um, you know, a one at a time strategy is, you know, hopeless <laughs> right. for that. That can't possibly right. work. So so sort of the, the, the key insight uh, kind of at the heart of all your work is that the difference between a rule that is generally complied with and a rule that is generally not complied with is not 
does not come down to enforcement or the degree of enforcement or the strength of enforcement. It's much more to do with the design of the regulation in the first place. So to help kind of to help listeners kind of wrap their head around that, let's just start with a couple of examples. So let's start with an example of a rule that is poorly designed such that it it, it renders non-compliance sort of inevitable and fails to meet its goals. Like what's a good example of a of doing it wrong? Uh, the perfect storm of a bad compliance design actually was the program for coal-fired power. Uh, there's a program that is called New Source Review for mm-hmm. the policy wonks out there. And it was a program that Congress started and that EPA was charged with implementing that had a goal of cleaning up the largest sources of air pollution as they modernize. So they exempted the existing sources from the uh, tougher controls, but said you'll have to install them as you modernize your plant. That was Congress's theory that over time, the uh, largest sources of air pollution, including coal-fired power, but not limited to them, would uh, gradually clean up the rat. Right. And, well, the, and the presumption was that, of course, they're all going to modernize at some point. Right? And of they course do. Of course, they're not just going <laughs> to s- s- sit there. and right. right. And they did. They did modernize, but they took advantage of uh, and manipulated, frankly, uh, the rule to avoid to modernize, but avoid having to install the pollution controls. And that happened because the way the thing was designed, the new source review program was set up so that every determination of who, when were you modernizing enough such that you triggered the obligation to install the pollution controls was a very fact-intensive, site-specific decision. Uh, So there was no general rule. Was uh, You know, every piece of inch of uh, ground was fiercely fought over. Then the uh, there was almost no uh, reporting required. So the companies held the information that was necessary to determine if they had crossed that threshold and should be now modernizing. Um, And they weren't going to give it to EPA uh, without a fight. And it was uh, quite expensive to install these modern controls. It was worth it, worth it totally, uh, because of the huge, you know, public health gains you get. Well, wor- worth it for the public, uh, right? <laughs> worth it for well, yeah, and worth it from a regulatory perspective. The, right, the benefits right. far outweighed the cost. Right, right. But so b- the reason that's relevant is it gave the companies a lot of incentive to fight. Mm. Uh, and so uh, what happened after that that rule was put in place was exactly what somebody who's looking at rules through the next generation compliance lens would predict, which is they look for ways around, they obfuscate, they they withhold evidence, they, you know, they make life difficult, they fight and they litigate, and um, every case takes years and years and years uh, to get done. They lose in the end, um, almost all the cases uh, they won, <laughs> uh, but they've gained some time. Right. Um, so all the economic incentives for them lined up uh, behind not complying. So that's an example of a disastrously <laughs> designed uh, uh, pollution rule. Right. So that's a rule where inadvertently you've created a massive financial incentive for cheating. Like right. it is it, it is in the rational self-interests of, the, of these coal plants, right, 
to to fight and delay. Like it it, it makes absolute sense for them. It, you could even argue, insofar as they're uh, you know uh, beholden to shareholders, that it's their obligation to to, to well. fight and sue. I mean, that might be, that might be I wouldn't go it. that far. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, they're supposed to. Their obligations to comply with the law. They weren't complying. They knew it. You know, it, it wasn't most of these times not a close question. Um, but it was very difficult. So, so I wouldn't take it that far, but I, but I would agree that it was uh, not only predictable that this would happen, it was really inevitable that it would happen. But was it, was it predicted? Was there, I mean, were were there voices at the time saying, guys, this grandfathering in idea is a disaster in the making? Well, I wasn't there uh, when this rule was set up, so I couldn't speak to what the conversations were internally. Um, uh, I would say that it certainly occurred at a time when no one was really challenging these this fundamental belief structure, uh, which I think is demonstrably wrong, the belief structure that most will comply and enforcement will take care of the rest, right. um, that that was certainly the dominant uh, as it is today, but even more so than the dominant view about how this structure should work. Right. So then that's a, that's a, a great example of um, where you sort of built in the way you built the rule makes rule violations all but inevitable. So what's a, then let's turn our gaze to a good example. What's an example of a rule? Because I think a lot of people probably intuitively just think, well, if you're asking companies to do things that cost them a lot of money, <laughs> rule violations and this kind of fighting of the rule is inevitable, right? So, but but sort of what you point out in your work is that you can actually design a rule such that it makes, you know, breaking the rule more hassle than it's worth, basically, yes. or more expense than it's worth. So what's a good example of a rule that, that pulled that off? Well, the best example uh, of a completed rule, and there's one actually recent example of a proposed rule that's quite intriguing, but the best example of a, of a completed rule is in the acid rain program, mm. which is particularly interesting, uh, I think, for proving the thesis of next gen, uh, because it covers the same sector, okay, coal-fired power <laughs> right. uh, was the regulated entity. And unlike the compliance catastrophe that happened with New Source Review, acid rain program had 99% compliance. Wow. Uh, so how did they do it? A couple key features. These are interlocking features. No one of these does it by itself, but together, they that's what makes a, a really robust compliance structure. One was continuous emission monitoring. Uh, so don't guess, don't estimate, actually right. know in real time how much pollution you have. Um, this was the this program was designed to reduce sulfur dioxide pollution from power plants that was causing actually literally acidic rain in big parts of the country and devastating ecosystems. So they were trying to reduce sulfur dioxide emission from coal-fired power plants. So the measurement, continuous real-time measurement of sulfur dioxide, an incentive to use uh, the monitoring by saying, and by the way, uh, if your monitor is not working or you don't pass quality control, we're going to assume that you had a lot of pollution. Okay. So you're going to be treated as though it was bad for anything that's missing. (laughs) Electronic reporting, uh, which you'd think that seems like a no-brainer, right? But there's still programs (laughs) that don't have that today. Um, So electronic reporting to a central uh, system, which allows uh, monitoring in real time and also data analytics, which are really important for spotting anomalies and, and fixing problems. And then simplicity 
which is an mm. underappreciated <laughs> value <laughs> for getting compliance. Um, even though it's a complicated program, monitoring is complicated, there's hundreds of pages of guidance of how to run these monitors and what to do. It was all boiled down to very simple thing, a ton of emissions and one allowance for every ton. Do you have enough allowances to cover your tons? And yes or no. Uh, right. Impossible to miss a violation. And then the, the coup de grace at the end is uh, automatic penalties. So if you don't mm. have enough allowances to cover your emissions at the end of the year, you owe a penalty automatically. <laughs> You're not, don't wait to be sued. You owe it right now. <laughs> um, and by the way, your penalty is more than it would cost you to go out and buy an allowance. Uh, uh, so this combination of strategies together made it hard to violate. Uh, there, was, there was really no way to manipulate the situation. Everyone was going to know what was going on. Uh, there was only one pathway forward, and that was to comply. It was more hassle, more expensive to violate. Got it. So, so trying to cheat on that, you'd have to sort of rig your monitor or or lie on your electronic reports at risk of much greater expense right. than it would have taken just to not do it. So it just becomes easy, easy to comply. Yeah. So the the whole idea is to try to make compliance the path of least resistance. So if you're you're not paying attention or you have people that make mistakes or whatever, that's the real world that happens. Life is messy. You make it so that um, those kind of things are addressed within your rule. You're not waiting to catch people afterward. Uh, it's brought to their attention through the design of the rule itself. Right. And even sort of violations and fines and punishments can all sort of just happen automatically. Is there... I mean, I don't know if there's a sort of single metric to capture the advantages of this, but was the, was the acid rain program notably cheaper for EPA? I mean, just from the EPA's perspective, like, is there a way of measuring sort of how expensive it is in terms of enforcement and monitoring and compliance and everything else just for, just for the agency itself? There, there really is no perfect way of doing that. And I would say here's... Here's part of the rub. So we're not measuring what a next-gen strategy uh, would cost versus getting to the same result through enforcement mm. uh, because that's not going to happen. There isn't the resources to get to the same result through enforcement. So what you're measuring is a next-gen strategy that gets to your you know, public health endpoint at reasonable cost against not getting there. Okay. <laughs> right. So those are the two, those are really the choices. Um, it is, you know, the, the uh, enforcement uh, work that was done for coal-fired power is really the exception that proves the rule. This was like, you know, a one-off uh, that you could do it that way. Normally you can't. Right. You'd have to have a galactic-sized yes. <laughs> enforcement agency with unlimited yeah. funds, which we definitely, definitely do Don't not have, have in, uh, in EPA. Um, insofar as wonks and even I think some ordinary people do think about rule design or regulation design, sort of the, the, the vogue, the in vogue opinion these days is that market-based. Oh, God. Market-based <laughs> is great. Flexible is great. Performance-based is great. You want to specify the end goal, not the means, and you want to leave, you want to leave it open to, to entities how they comply, and, and then by doing that, you will get the cheapest possible outcome. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is, I think, something 
close to religion these days in mm-hmm. in environmental circles, uh, maybe even beyond environmental circles, along with endless bashing of so-called command and control uh, regulations, which, you know, dare to specify things <laughs> uh, and, and dare to, you know, impose mandates and things like that. Um, you have a great discussion of this s- sort of fight. One of the points you make is that these terms have have become almost meaningless. They're like more identity, you know, they're more identity based now than, than referring to any particular features of programs. But explain maybe just to sort of your, your average listener who has been, you know, generally convinced by this, you know, markets are great, they're flexible. And, and they look at, in fact, the acid rain program. This is the, precisely the one that people cite to claim, oh, look how cheap and great market-based programs are. So your point is not that market programs are bad, just that the features that make a rule good or bad are orthogonal to this distinction between between markets and command and control. So ex- just explore that a little bit with us. So I I totally agree that uh, performance-based and markets have become their own orthodoxy, comparable in power and breadth to the uh, beliefs that uh, drive the problem that gave rise to next-gen, which is, you know, sort of everyone complies and enforcement right. takes care of it. Uh, performance-based and markets are, are a similar type of orthodoxy. Um, you are right that I think both of those strategies have potential in the right circumstance. And markets are primarily about saving money for compliance, uh, not about driving compliance. They're, they're about uh, more efficiency, uh, and they have power to do that. Uh, two things I would say on that. The first is markets happen because of command and control. Okay, that's how we create a market. Uh, you know, we, the market doesn't just, you know, spring from the earth. Uh, a fully formed. It's a market is created because a regulatory agency decides to create a market. That's what happened with acid rain. And it did so by imposing a regulation that says you can only have so much pollution and you got to report this way and you got to have monitors, you got to do this, you got to do that. Traditional command and control type things. But the mechanism for uh, efficiency was a, a market mechanism at the end of the day. The market mechanism has nothing to do with the compliance result. It saved some money, but it did not drive compliance. The thing that drove compliance was this design structure that I described to you, all of which were standard command and control type things, how you report, how you monitor, you know, what your obligations are, penalties, that kind of thing. The other, you know, big uh, uh, challenge of markets, um, I, I get the economists love them um, because <laughs> they really they really really do <laughs> uh, you know and it, it, it looks pretty good on paper uh, this idea that you can have all of this individual flexibility and everyone is so efficient and it seems really great next gen is is focused on the practical it's focused on the real world what's actually going to happen not how does it look in theory um, and what I discovered in researching uh, the book is that there's actually very little data and evidence that supports the idea that markets are A, effective, or B, certainly not more effective than command and control, what's derided as command and control hmm. um, in achieving uh, environmental results. The, the record is just stunningly thin. Uh, huh. It's really a, a more uh, an ideology uh, that drives it. 
here's an illustration of uh, here's some evidence <laughs> <laughs> uh, about the the comparative uh, market uh, and flexible performance based um, as opposed to sort of the one size fits all is what most people are thinking when they think command and control. So at the beginning of the Clean Water Act, um, you know, way back when there was a huge problem with water pollution around the country, huge problem. There was, you know, the sewage treatment and nutrients and stuff was, you know, flooding into the waterways and Congress was like, okay, that's got to stop. States, you're in charge. Go out there and you know, do your monitoring and impose permit limits and fix this problem. Uh, go get them. And it didn't happen. It mm. did not happen. And the reason is that the states uh, were, as it turned out, unable uh, to surmount the technical and political challenges of imposing the necessary obligations on the sources in the flexible and ambient monitoring-based way that everybody talks about as being so <sighs> desirable. So. Congress came back years later and said, okay, guess what? You blew it. It's not working. States, forget <laughs> it. Never mind that. We're not doing that. Uh, what we are going to do now is Congress said every sewage treatment plant in America is going to meet the following standard. <laughs> okay, so EPA, you write the standard. Everyone's going to meet it. No exceptions. That's it. Period. The end. Uh, the classic command and control thing. And guess what? The rivers got cleaned up. Uh, so. So I, you know, when we look at what the record shows, um, yes, markets can work when they are accompanied by thoughtful design um, that looks at all these questions and there's adequate monitoring and there's good structure around it. Just sort of saying we're going to get out there and be flexible is a recipe for disaster. Right. One of the points you make in this in this respect is that in this, I guess. It was a little bit of a mind blower for me too. I just never really thought about it in quite this way. But you say flexibility for the regulated entities is sort of the mirror image of increased costs for the regulator. Like all that, all that flexibility for the regulated means that more work for the regulator, right? I mean, I, I think people just don't take that into account when they're thinking about these market-based rules. Yeah, so so there's all different types of flexibility. So markets are one way, but there's also plenty of rules that say, well, you can, you know, people should try to do A, but if you can't do A, then you could consider B, C, or D. And by the way, maybe some people have E and maybe you're exempt. And by the time you get to the end of what is this regulatory structure, nobody can figure out who has to do what. And <laughs> It is very tough um, from a compliance driving perspective, never mind enforcement, um, if you can't be sure exactly who's supposed to do what. If, if every determination is very fact specific and you got to actually get all the records from the company to figure out why did they choose C and not A, uh, to figure out if they're doing anything wrong, um, you've created a situation where government can't know who's complying and who isn't. And that uh, degree of fog and gray and ambiguity provides lots of place to hide for companies. Some companies are legitimately doing operating in that zone that they're allowed, and some are hiding there. Uh, and from government's perspective, it's almost impossible to tell the difference without a huge investment of resources, which, as we've already talked about, that's not coming. Uh, right. So. Yeah, this is another, another thing you point out. I mean, it's easy for lawmakers to say, oh, we're going to give all this flexibility to the regulated entities, sure, that will require more 
from the regulators, you know, more enforcement, more monitoring, more just time and money, but that's fine. We'll just uh, spend the more time and money. But, but in fact, <laughs> they do not then boost EPA's um, uh, uh, budget to, to accommodate that. In fact, you don't get the additional resources. And the result is just violations, as right. you say. It's just, it's just right. a whole lot of cheating. Well, and there, there's it leads to a lot of violations, and uh, just as concerning, it leads to uh, government being unable to even know how's it going. Right. Um, they don't know whether the facilities are meeting what's required or not. So if there's a lot of monitoring violations, a lot of reporting violations, uh, a lot of ambiguity about what the, you know, the pollution obligations are, um, government can't really say uh, whether we're achieving the objectives or not, which is uh a really, really bad place to be <laughs> uh, for right. government when you have obligations that are important for protecting public health, and you don't know uh, whether you're getting there or not. And also, they're in statute, so uh, <laughs> you're supposed to you're supposed to be doing. It. You're supposed to know. Are there sort of generalizations you can make about when markets and flexibility? are promising solutions when they're a good fit and when they're not like is it is it possible to sort of look at a new area and sort of determine based on a few features like whether or not it's market amenable um i would say the most important and essential thing for a market to work is a good uh, measurement strategy if you cannot measure reliably and have a lot of confidence in uh, the thing being traded being actually worth what it claims to be worth, then your market program will not work. There's going to be a lot of mess and confusion, and and you will have zero idea uh, whether <laughs> you're actually getting there. So, so I would say that's a you know essential. And, you know, all the experts say this, too. So deep in the papers that the economists write are favoring markets, they have throwaway lines saying, of course, this only works if you have good monitoring. Well, OK, yeah, <laughs> right. OK, but that's a pretty big point because there isn't good monitoring uh, for that. Um, right. And yeah, I just want to emphasize this because <laughs> this is this is a, a point you made that also stuck in my head is insofar as you're rather than, um, you know, sort of specifically mandating uh, facility level reductions insofar as you're just sort of measuring performance at the end, that really raises the importance of being able to measure <laughs> performance, yes. right? Like, like if, if, cause that's all you're measuring now, you're not, if you're not doing these facility specific measurements, you really need to be able to measure the end goal very precisely, even right. more so than normal. So imagine, uh, the acid rain program with no monitoring. Okay, right. so just get out there and trade your SO2 emissions. How much did you have? Well, you tell us how much you had, you know, <laughs> uh, and we'll see how it goes. Okay, we would not have achieved the actual reduction in SO2 and acid rain with a system like that. Impossible. Right. You'd still have all the market, you still have all the market features and all the flexibility, but without the measurement, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. You'd have no compliance. So, uh, and you wouldn't really know how you're doing. You could measure the rain and see, well, we're not getting there, but why? you wouldn't know why. So, yes, you, you absolutely have to have measurement. And the other thing you need is uh, a group of fairly sophisticated participants. 
Um, they need to be able to uh, report electronically with a high degree of precision and consistency. Mm. And you can't have a huge amount of variability across source types. So it, it requires certain types of problems uh, will be good for that. Um, and some problems are impossible for that. And it's important that, that the people who are designing policy uh, recognize that. And, you know, I personally would prefer if they, the ideologues who push markets for every problem uh, would live by what their own colleagues are saying is you can't do it without monitoring. So, uh, <laughs> right. you know, so don't even talk to me about your market until you show me your monitoring strategy. Right. So, so SO2 then here is the kind of classic example of a market amenable problem because it's just measuring SO2 is, is fairly straightforward and, and, and possible. There's a limited number of coal plants there. They tend to be owned by big businesses that are relatively sophisticated and, and right. have, and have this relationship with EPA already with reporting and monitoring of stuff. So it's like a perfect area. So what's that like? A, what's an example of a problem? where you look at it and say, you're never going to get a market to, <laughs> you're never going to, a market will never work there. Like where, where, where do you need a heavier hand? What's a good example? Well, we have an example in front of us in the renewable fuel standard, which is not exact, it's market-like, it's not exactly market. Uh, but Wait, can we just pause real quick and just yeah. explain to, to listeners what, what the renewable fuel standard is? Renewable fuel is the also sometimes known as low carbon fuel. It's it's a, a program designed to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to reduce dependence on foreign oil by uh, using there's a lot of different sources, but from plants essentially is the part right. we're concerned about here. So it's kind of like carbon is recycled by the plants. Yes, you create carbon when you burn the fuel in your tank or your car, uh, but in theory, uh, carbon is taken up by the plants when they grow. And so the great theoretical uh, construct here is that you would have, you know, recycling of carbon. So you would reduce the climate impact. And this was about ethanol, right? Back, this ethanol. Was back in the day, this is, came, came about a long time ago. This was like, yeah, predated a lot of still, other climate programs. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the market-like situation for in the renewable fuel standard was the credit that's required uh, similar to the allowance that happened in the SRM program the renewable energy credit uh, that's created was separated from the actual fuel itself so companies were buying these credits but they weren't necessarily buying the actual fuel that was made Mm. Um, and so it has a market-like system because it's trading something, pieces of paper, essentially, that people are trusting, hoping, believing, um, actually reflect uh, a gallon <laughs> of actual fuel. Uh, and what we've discovered is, no, they don't. Okay, no, they don't. Um, there was a huge amount of fraud in that program. I shouldn't. I shouldn't use the past tense. There is a, a huge amount of fraud uh, in that program uh, so substantial um, that you really can't know when you buy one of these uh, credits on paper um, if it actually reflects either a renewable fuel gallon or not. It's, it's impossible to know. So 
that's a pro- RFS has a ton of other big problems, <laughs> which we could talk about when we turn to climate. But uh, but this market based element was was doomed for failure because there was no mechanism to actually be sure um, that a, a credit was actually worth what it claimed to be worth, and that's why your market can't achieve the endpoint. And and you couldn't be sure because of the sort of ambiguities in you know like the chain here sort of you have to you have the land and if you plant biofuel crops in the land maybe you're displacing the farming crops which will then use fresh land, right? So so maybe the fresh <laughs> land, maybe the maybe the, the fresh land use gets attributed to the biofuels, maybe not and then you know, well, there's a huge. You're you're pointing out the reason why conventional biofuels are actually not climate enhancers, which is which is itself an interesting topic and also has a significant compliance dimension. The the point I was raising was just the narrow point about fraud in the market. Um, uh, that because no one could be sure that there was actually a gallon of fuel produced uh, because it was possible for companies to go in and just manipulate a bunch of paperwork and computer stuff and voila, they produced credits with no fuel. There wasn't really a mechanism to prevent that from happening. Uh, And certainly one thing we've observed and learned from real life experience is if you create a market where people can make a lot of money and you have no controls, there's going to be fraud. Okay. There's going to be a lot of fraud. Uh, And that's, that's just the reality of life. Uh, So rather than bemoan that reality and say, Oh, (laughs) woe is me. There's fraudsters. Yeah, there's fraudsters. Okay. Of course there are. That's, you know, live with it. This is, you need to design a program that prevents that. Um, You don't, don't complain about it and whine about it afterwards. Don't allow it to happen. Right. So then let's use uh, our time remaining then to to think about how these principles of good regulatory design might apply to some climate rules, which are very much in the news now and very much uh, active subjects of discussion. A lot of the discussion takes the form of uh, you know, let's be, let's use markets and flexibility. Let's not be heavy handed. Let's not use command and control. Mm-hmm. That, that, that argument is replicating itself all over the place around, around climate rules to my great frustration. And I assume yours. So let's, let's look at a few specific examples. Your, your example from electricity, uh, was very gratifying <laughs> for, for me as, as a huge fan of renewable portfolio standards, which, you know, for those who don't know, <clears throat> are just state-based, uh, rules on utilities that say you have to increase the percentage of your total power provided by renewables over time. So you say that these things can work for, for, for several reasons with one big caveat. So tell us about that. So totally right that um, it is not simple, but can be done to design something that looks like a renewable portfolio standard where utilities have to buy, you know, some percentage of their power from solar, wind, uh, you know, other, other forms of renewable. That's easy to measure. We know how to do that. We're already measuring that now. That system can be designed to to function very well, that you know you're getting the carbon reductions that you're uh, expecting to get. That's very possible to do. One of the ones that is talked about a lot um, that doesn't fit into that structure is energy efficiency. And, and that goes directly back to the point we were talking about earlier about measurement. So energy efficiency is how much energy you use to do something versus 
what you would have used the, the <laughs> counterfactual the counterfactual and so you can already see from that it's not measurable there's nowhere to go out in the world and mm-hmm. and uh, take a sample or do something that measures that it's a assumption that you make about what would have happened in the world if you did not do your energy efficiency <laughs> program right. so so that's that's one of the first weaknesses um, another significant weakness is that because it's not possible to do a big giant modeling, you know, uh, a general equilibrium models, you know, kind of thing that figure out what the impacts of your energy efficiency project are, people have to have a shortcut. That's not administratively, you can't, you know, expect people to do this gigantic measuring thing every time you do a project. And so people have developed this shorthand for what energy efficiency uh, usually save. So if I install right. two inches of, you know, insulation in my right. ceiling, I can assume I save X amount of energy and you can take that to the bank and you have it get, consider those a credit. Well, the robust research that's been done about those says that they greatly overstate the savings, greatly mm. overstate the savings. So um, what we've all been assuming we get in energy savings is not really what we get. And one of my favorite illustrations of this, of how the real world, you know, interjects into your theoretical uh, construct is the least effective energy efficiency is energy efficiency installed on a Friday. Um, What? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So somebody did a study showing that on Fridays, if if your energy efficiency is installed on a Friday, it probably doesn't work as well as if it's installed on a Thursday. And I'm just going to I'm just going to pause for a minute and contemplate <laughs> why, why everybody should just take a moment to guess uh, to, to guess why that might be before we get the answer here. Well, obviously, uh, you know, on Fridays, people are incentivized to cut corners um, and, you know, you got to get that job done today, today, today. You're not coming back tomorrow. Uh, you don't want to come back on Monday. So this is just one of many studies that have been done saying that the assumptions that we've all been making about what energy savings and thus carbon reductions we get from energy efficiency uh, are uh, right. And then the last thing, which is common to every time, every rule, every structure, is what? how do the incentives line up? Right. All the incentives line up for people to overstate savings, the people who install it. I was going to say, yeah, everyone, the regulators, the public, everyone. like everyone wants to believe everyone, that this is right. working well. <laughs> so, so whenever you have a system that everybody uh, benefits if you overstate something, right? guess what? <laughs> They're going to overstate it. Okay. And, and that's what the studies show. Uh, so there've been some quite robust studies, um, including in California, which is one of the most rigorous programs uh, anywhere showing that the incentive, because of these incentive structures, uh, people overstate saving. So the, the challenge, this is why this is relevant to carbon and whether uh, a clean electricity standard can achieve the carbon reductions. If you include energy efficiency, you have the inherent uncertainty, the the inaccuracy of the deemed savings, mm. the incentive structure, all those things align to say when you are trying to sell your energy efficiency credit, you don't know what you have there. Right. Um, and why is that a big problem? A, we can't solve that through enforcement. Okay, so that should be probably self-evident. The reason it's a big problem is that if the utility buys energy efficiency credits instead of solar or wind right. credits, 
um, they are going to be emitting more carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you include this very hard to measure element in your market, you're going to reduce the chances that you achieve your carbon uh, reduction goal, which is not to say that energy efficiency isn't good. We got to have it. Got to have energy efficiency as much as you can, you know, as fast as you mm-hmm. can everywhere. That's an absolutely essential. And what I argue is that Yes, you need to do that through something like an energy efficiency research standard. You, you have to mandate energy efficiency, go, 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 you know, fast as you can. What you shouldn't do is combine it with the utilities obligation to achieve a clean electricity standard because that will undercut right. your carbon uh, reduction goal. So you keep those, you, you keep those separate, basically. Yeah, the, don't put E into here. the market. Yeah. <laughs> Put it into, guess what, a command and control <laughs> program mandate that people do energy efficiency. So, so that would be, so the, you know, on the energy efficiency side, rather than sort of trying to measure and make uh, sort of rewards based on um, reduction in energy use, which is difficult, if not impossible, to, to closely track, you just tell people, insulate your damn buildings like you just yes. require them to, to to insulate their buildings well there's ways there's ways to design programs of that type that provide the maximum incentives and the you know maximum efficiency mm-hmm. and stuff so it's not just as simple you know it's it's not a the whole idea of an energy efficiency resource standard is not a simple mind to just tell everybody exactly what to do but it it decouples it from the market Right. Um, you what you can't do is put something that's not measurable essentially into a market setting because right. you you're going to distort that whole market and you will undercut your ability for the market to do what it's supposed to be doing. So you need to do it a different way, and there are other ways uh, to to get energy efficiency. You know, as I was reading this section of your paper, uh, it occurred to me that there's a very very analogous situation in terms of Cap and trade systems oh, and offsets, and, and offsets, <laughs> <laughs> offsets, which are which are legendarily entirely based on counterfactuals, right? Entire one hundred percent based on what would have happened if this had not happened, and then you're taking those counterfactual based credits and sticking them directly into a market uh, where they are doing just what your theory <laughs> would predict <laughs> they would do. Totally. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, carbon offset programs have all the same problems we've just talked about with energy efficiency, plus some more. So all the research studies that I have seen have said that the offset programs are not delivering nowhere close, not in right. the same uh, solar system <laughs> as what's being claimed. Nowhere close. And you've got all these incentives for people to overclaim. And of course, that's what they're going to do. And it's impossible to check up on it. So you know what happens. And that is what happens. Uh, so there's been a huge amount of fraud and other, you know, significant, significant problems with carbon offsets. What about cap and trade generally, though? Say you could take offsets off the table. What's your, what are your thoughts on trying to marketize carbon dioxide emissions? That is doable with, uh, you know, from a compliance mm-hmm. uh, lens. Um, it is totally doable if you have a measurement strategy for every participant. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to have something that you can take to the bank. Yep, that's a ton of carbon. We, you know, I'm sure about it. If you have that, then a market strategy is, you know, a feasible way to drive innovation and reduce costs. So it has potential. Uh, but where it runs aground is by allowing in things that are really not measurable. 
uh, and the more unmeasurable they are, the more the market will seek those out. Uh, because it's, <laughs> right. you know, those are going to be cheaper because, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, because they're not real. Um, right. So, you know, so it, that's where you invite disaster is by allowing the unmeasurable things into your market. Mm. So then on transportation, uh, uh, one of your other three examples, climate-related examples, um, you know, we talked about the RFS, the biofuels program, and what a sort of comprehensive disaster it is. <laughs> you're you're a little bit kinder to low carbon fuel standards of the kind that are now in place in well, I guess all, really all along the West Coast, California, um, and Oregon, and Washington, I think now. And you're also um, pretty friendly toward um, fuel economy standards, old school cafe standards. So explain why those work and sort of in contrast to the RFS. Well, fuel economy standards or, you know, emission standards for vehicles um, is something that we, uh, it certainly is possible to design for a strong compliance. Volkswagen notwithstanding. Uh, <laughs> right. and, and other, by the way, Volkswagen's not the only one. So I think uh, EPA's eyes were open to the possibility of Straight ahead cheating, fraud. Yes, um, at scale, <laughs> really at scale. So I think a, a lot of people, I felt like saying, see, see, this is what I've been telling you. <laughs> <laughs> this happens. So I think people's eyes were open to that. And I think that the adjustments have been made in the um, vehicles program at EPA to address that. So that has now become very, very tough uh, to get away with, I think. And, you know, eventually the uh, passenger vehicles are going to shift to electric. So right. and, yeah, that's just a whole, you know, different animal in terms of uh, compliance uh, strategy. That seems very doable. Let me ask you about that, because this is from a regulation, from a regulatory point of view, this has always struck me as a little bit of a dilemma. It's one thing to regulate internal combustion engines, vehicles such that they become more efficient and emit less over time. But when you're trying to engineer a mode switch to a different kind of engine, it seems like just ratcheting up fuel economy standards is kind of a yeah, just you kind of an indirect yeah, it's kind of a yeah, bank yeah. shot. It's a bank shot approach. So what's well, the so I think the the near term thing, of course, is to is to reduce pollution as much as possible, right. make the vehicles as efficient as they can be, and reduce pollution as much as possible. Because carbon is not the only thing we care about from vehicles. Right, right. There's a lot of you know health problems associated with vehicles, and it's a huge EJ issue uh, too. So yes, you can get you can get better. You can do better <laughs> than where we are now <laughs> on efficiency and and pollution from vehicles. Uh, but the shift to electric vehicles um, is is not a gradual, you know, you don't just design right. your way down to it. Uh, it's, a, it's a shift. What I'm saying is that from a compliance perspective, that's very manageable. Uh, mm. to, to ensure that you're actually, people are actually doing what they claim to be doing, that's a manageable thing mm. in terms of the manufacturer uh, of those vehicles. The low carbon fuels, um, I just want to uh, be clear, um, I am not saying that low carbon fuel programs don't have the same problems that the renewable fuel standard has in terms of climate impacts. It's a little bit better of a design because uh, it doesn't have cliff-like drop-offs in the obligations like like the renewable fuel standard has. It's more gradual and, you know, sort of markets mm. type system. And so it has those benefits. 
they both depend on trying to figure out how much carbon from land use change uh, occurs. They have the identical, there's no difference. They have the identical problem for that. Anything that involves biofuels basically is going to run into that, to that problem. So I I know you, you shifted us to RFS, but if I could throw in another topic on climate that is a late breaker uh, that I think is particularly encouraging and interesting is EPA's proposed rule for uh, hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, Mm. um, which are the massively intensive climate forcing. I mean, hundreds to thousands of times uh, more climate forcing than carbon. In the near T- and t- typically in refrigerants. Refrigerants right? usually, a- yes. Yeah. So um, this is uh, a very positive story, uh, a next-gen type story. In Europe, where they first started regulating uh, HFCs, as they are uh, called, mm-hmm. There's been documented huge amount of fraud and illegal activity and illegal smuggling, <laughs> and they got they got probs out the wazoo over there. Uh, you know, more than thirty uh, percent uh, over the standard uh, already, oh, and that's before they've even gotten into where it's tight. Okay, so they're <laughs> they're in a bad way uh, over there, and the same thing would have happened in the U.S. Congress just. Uh, passed the law December 2020 telling EPA to regulate HFCs and telling them in general how to do that. And in May, EPA put out a proposed rule, which is the most forward-thinking next-gen type of proposal since acid rain. Oh, really? Well, can yeah. we can, can we pause and ask why? Like, is it just good good people at the EPA or what? <laughs> well, I think it's, it's what came good. Together? I think it is uh, good people who are open to innovation and who looked at the situation in Europe and thought, oh, my God, (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's a situation where noncompliance will sink you. Um, It's not like around the edges it could be better. No, no, you will never get there. Uh, You know, you're going to have mostly illegal activity. So necessity, Uh, necessity necessity being a little bit of the mother of invention. And they're they're a great bunch of people over there in the air office uh, at EPA, innovators and and thoughtful and very open to trying new things. And so the rule they've proposed in May uh, has a whole bunch of really terrific ideas to try to prevent that kind of uh, disastrous thing. Uh, from happening in the United States. Uh, I could just give you, let me just give you a couple examples of things that they've included um, Mm. that Europe doesn't have. One is, this seems like a terrifically obvious idea (laughs) once you hear it and you think of it. Um, Real-time check at the border. So uh, in Europe, every the products just come in, and and the countries hope to track them down if they were unlawful later. Uh, good luck with that. Okay, that that's not going to happen. So what they're proposing is that there'll be a real time check at the border that you cannot bring a product in. Customs will not allow it in um, unless they connect to the data system and show that a you're legitimate, b you have enough credits to cover this import. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't, no, can't come in. Sorry. So that's. As, and that's a real time, you know, it's updated, you know, instantaneously. So isn't that's that a, real a little, time isn't that costly though? I mean, isn't that expensive? It's not hugely expensive. Hands on work? No, it's not hugely expensive. So uh, Customs has over the years developed a, uh, electronic programs to enable it to take advantage of, you know, mm. today's IT. Um, and EPA can develop its side of that and plug it into the Customs uh, system. Got it. 
it's very doable. Real-time monitoring at the border is a, is a very doable thing in today's uh, IT uh, environment. And it makes total sense that you would try to stop things at the border. Another thing that they uh, included in here is a QR code. You know, like the barcode that you have on right. just about every product you buy now. Right. Um, a QR code on every container um, that also links to EPA's data system. So it is possible for anyone with a phone uh, to <laughs> say, is this company that's trying to sell me this product legitimate? And is this particular can that I'm looking at here okay? Uh -huh. And it is possible to do that today. So there's lots of other things, but those two things illustrate that EPA has designed a very tight system to block things at the border and then to reduce the demand for those unlawful products by making it possible to know in real time, every single container, is this legal or not? Right. And just, and, and thereby make it a huge pain in the ass to try to smuggle stuff in, basically, to, yeah. try, to try to cheat. A huge, a huge pain. Your chances of getting caught are very high. The consequences are severe. They put, you know, very significant consequences in. And your market is substantially reduced because EPA is working on the demand side too. So it's a, it's a structure that is very thoughtfully designed uh, to prevent there from being illegal activity. And, you know, this is one of the toughest kinds of compliance pro problems there are of how to keep illegal product from coming in across the border. Very hard. Right. Uh, but this is a very thoughtful and quite uh, groundbreaking proposal from EPA. It, it, it raises, and I, I know we're, we're almost out of time, but this <laughs> raises kind of a little bit of a side question, which is, um, you know, when people talk about carbon taxes, there's a lot of discussion of border adjustments, which would amount to, I guess, trying to do roughly the same thing, which is make public the amount of carbon embedded in every product that comes in over the border, which just strikes me intuitively as way trickier than measuring HFC content. Have you have you given some thought to that? Well, I mean, that gets to the, the heart of the measurement issue that we've been talking about. What is the embedded carbon in your product? There, there's a jillion judgments that go into right. that question. Mm -hmm. um, include, and I mean, the renewable fuel standard is one illustration of that, where the recent science is showing that actually when you produce those, the conventional renewable fuels, uh, you're disturbing, you end up disturbing a lot of land and you're, you're arguably making a, uh, the climate situation worse and not better. Every product that you attempt to put a carbon stamp on as to, you know, how much carbon is embedded in this product is a gigantic measurement question and, you know, very, very, very uh, challenging. So imposing a tax once you have a carbon measurement is comparatively quite easy, simple. <laughs> right. um, the tax is not the point. The point is who puts the carbon label on there and yeah. how confident are you that that reflects real life? Yes. And I'm just... And I I'm just imagining every link in the supply chain has incentive to downplay the amount of carbon involved. Like literally every entity involved in all of this wants to cheat. And there you are, the right. regulator, you know, with thousands and thousands of these products in front of you. Yeah. Whenever you have an incentive system that's lined up to push in one direction, uh, where it's obvious what the regulated parties would prefer the outcome to be. And you have essentially no real way to check 
okay, that's that's where you get these kinds of compliance disasters. Right. So um, as a final subject then, because this links into one last thing I wanted to ask you about, let's talk about uh, oil and gas production. This your that's your third example, and specifically you're talking about methane. Um, you know, sort of uh, notoriously, the oil and gas production process leaks methane at more or less every stage, and methane is a very um, uh, active short-term greenhouse gas, and this is a problem, and there's been arguments going on for years now about <laughs> about measuring this and enforcing this, and, you know, industry has been asking for, industry has been claiming they're doing it on its own, and industry has been asking to report its own measurements of what it does, so what's, uh, how, how does, how does the sort of measurement problem, how do you tackle methane, which is so sort of manifestly difficult, uh, from a monitoring perspective. Yeah, it is. Um, so on the one hand, the methane problem, uh, at least from a technical perspective, is actually f fairly straightforward. Uh, people know what to do. It, it's not like it's unknown or it, to people solve know it, what to mean. do. So how to, how to reduce the methane that comes from the wells, people know right. how to do that. Um, they're not doing it, uh, <laughs> but they know how to do it. Um, and so the technical answers are, are well understood. The compliance problem is uh, more complicated because of this point you, that you you put your finger on it, that the measurement of knowing what's going on is so difficult. And it's, it's even more difficult than it may appear because the amount of methane released, it, it's intermittent. Uh, right. You know, it could be a huge amount and then it drops off and then a huge amount and it drops off. So, so like a sample, if you just go in like one day and take yeah. one measurement, you're not getting a good, a good no. picture. Right. So, so it's intermittent and unpredictable uh, as to which wells are going to be the ones. And some mm -hmm. of them are, you know, the so-called super emitters. Right. Um, some of them are uh, quite stunningly high numbers for at least some uh, period of time. So until a monitoring solution is figured out, and a lot of people are really working on that, satellites might be part of the answer. There's aerial monitoring strategies. There's some ground-based ones. There's a, there's a lot of people applying themselves to this uh, problem. Uh, having a monitoring uh, strategy would be, you know, game changer for this industry of figuring this problem out and getting it fixed. Uh, but in the meantime, there are things that can be done. I give you two, these are two really small examples, but it shows the mind shift uh, that's needed in thinking about these problems. One is automating what you can. Hmm. Okay, so like one of the problems is people leave the hatches open on the tanks at the well pad, and <laughs> a lot of stuff. Can, okay, well, you know, have it automatically closed. How about? Yeah, it's, it's just like the toilet, the toilet lid, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Uh... <laughs> so, so I mean, that's like a. Sometimes that just happens accidentally, but you got a million well pads. You know, right. those numbers add up. So, if you had an automatic closing, for that's just an illustration of think about your problem differently. Uh, see if there's a technical uh, fix. The other one is a more conceptual fix, which is shifting the burden of proof. Government, there is no way government can monitor a million wells. I mean, let's yes. face it, okay? That's not going to happen. Uh, maybe someday through satellite imagery, you know, it's possible to get closer, but we're nowhere near that right now. Shifting the burden of proof says if there's credible evidence that you have a pollution problem, now it's on you, company, to prove it isn't and, and to fix it. 
Right. Prove to us that you're not yes. emitting excess You send methane. somebody out there, you figure it out. You know, as far as we're concerned, uh, this we have credible evidence that, that uh, you know, you've got a lot of pollution coming from your facility. You know, the burden shifts to you. That makes a lot of sense uh, because the data shows that if you're doing everything right, you shouldn't have that kind of a problem at your site. Hmm. And so if you're seeing a huge amount of emissions, something is up and you own it, you control it, you have access to it, it should be on you <laughs> to right. go go figure that out. You shouldn't be counting on your handful of government inspectors to get out to these million <laughs> you know, sites around the country to try to figure that out. You own the equipment, you have the inspection records, you have access to the people. Um, you are in the best position to solve this problem, and you should, because not only is it, is it methane with a you know climate change impacts, uh, but along with that are VOCs and other pollutants that right. that neighbors are are being exposed to. So you got to take care of that problem. But if we know what steps reduce that problem, and the technical problem is is, is sort of solved, why not just? go full command and control and just say all operators of all wells have to take steps one, two, and three and prove to us that you did it. Um, right. Um, <laughs> that's certainly a sensible way of going. Um, what, what I am, what I'm talking about is how do you, how do you handle the compliance problem of, did you do it? Okay. Right. Let's say you were required to do it, but you didn't do it. Okay. So EPA finds in the field now, lots of companies that are at oil and gas wells that are not doing what's required today. Uh. Um, and it's a, it's a big compliance problem because of this pro this issue of there's a million, more than a million, uh, it's intermittent. It's not visible to the naked eye. You got to have specialized equipment to see the leaks. It's unpredictable. So, so if you got a lot of companies out there that are not you know, accidentally or on purpose, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, how are you going to find them and get that fixed? Right. Um, and this shifting of the burden of proof is one illustration of how how you could change the framework under which everybody's operating. Right. Um, and you might even be able to, by doing that, uh, bring in the possibility of citizen science if there are mm. people who can establish that kind of credible evidence uh, it doesn't have to be government only. Uh, if there's citizens who can meet the threshold for that credible evidence, um, that provides some additional incentive and pressure uh, for companies to do what they're supposed to be doing. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I've kept you too long, but I did. you have now anticipated my final question a couple of times. So uh, clearly you've been thinking about it. But one of the sort of trends that I've been following is um, new ways of measuring these these things specifically, they have you know satellites that are that they claim can track real time methane uh, emissions down to the you know whatever square mile or I don't know what exactly it is and they're and they're saying the same thing about CO two now with with uh, with satellites that they can estimate real time you know this sort of pinpoint real time CO two emissions down to the square mile all over the earth and then there's you know these other programs where you're measuring. Uh, a criteria pollutants at the ground level uh, on a block by block basis. You can get now like sensors that you can plug into your phone. So anybody can do this. Anyway, my point being that, that insofar as the difficulty in measurement is a huge impediment to good regulation, do you see this sort of this sort of trend towards more and more different ways of measuring that don't rely on, you know, regulated entities to, <laughs> to, to, to be in charge of it? Um, do you see that opening up new 
avenues for regulation? Like, do you think regulation could get better on the back of, of, of monitoring getting better? I absolutely do. So I think that the technological innovation that's going on in monitoring is a huge, huge potential uh, game changer for many pollution problems. Um, there's there's no silver bullet, though. Mm. So I would say that, for example, satellite imagery is great for some types of pollutants. The resolution isn't that terrific. It's not so good when it's cloudy. I mean, there's a you know, a lot of different issues. Every type of monitoring system has its own uh, separate issues. There's, it, usually it's a combination of things and not one alone. Um, but I would also say lots of important environmental problems are not just straight ahead pollution monitoring type problems. Sure. Um, lead paint, uh, mm. you know, is an example. Industrial agriculture, um, renewable fuel standard, uh, energy efficiency. Okay, so there's a lot of important things that are not subject to, can just be monitored. Right. But having said that, I do think that the revolution really in monitoring where it's getting cheaper, smaller, more mobile, you know, better, provides huge amount of opportunity and is terrific news. Awesome. If I could just add one thing, because- Oh, please, please do. Uh, Sometimes when I talk about next gen, people misunderstand me, and I just want to make sure that I'm leaving no ambiguity. Um, sometimes people think I'm saying uh, we don't need enforcement. No, 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 no. I am not saying that. No. I, I did not think you to be saying that, just for the record. Enforcement is essential, required, must have. Uh, you cannot have an effective uh, compliance program without it. Uh, my point is that enforcement alone cannot fix the big compliance holes created right. by bad uh, regulatory compliance design. So I just want to make sure no one's confused. I think enforcement is essential, but stronger regs are going to get uh, much farther down the road uh, than relying on enforcement alone. Right. Will. So, so really absolutely promised final <laughs> question, which is you're sort of fighting, you're pushing back against trends in thinking around environmental regulation that have been building for decades now, this sort of obsession with markets and flexibility, this this kind of ignoring, I guess, almost of, of enforcement or just this assumption that you just throw more enforcement, you can get any rule uh, uh, enforced. Um, how lonely are you in this fight? In this fight, like I don't know if there's a way to answer this, but like uh, the people who are running EPA now, like how, are your are your ideas uh, catching on? What's kind of the state of thinking, I guess, in the in the in, in the field right now? Well, I would say the assumptions that compliance is pretty good and enforcement will take care of the rest is still the entrenched um, mm. thinking. But but I think there is some uh, traction. Uh, for these ideas, uh, maybe in part because I've been such a giant pain in the neck, everybody there. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, and I'm going to keep being, sorry to tell you guys, sorry. Um, and compliance is is not usually uh, talked about as part mm. of the policy discussion, but it should be because compliance is about what's going to happen in the real world. That's the place that matters. Uh, you know, that, that's what counts. So the, the people who are involved in policy discussions do care about what happens in the real world. And uh, if, if I'm out there raising a ruckus <laughs> uh, and continuing to do that, um, I'm hoping that, that we will get compliance at the table in these policy discussions so that people do not 
continue blithely along adopting rules that uh, will not achieve what they're intended to achieve. And, you know, I would say nowhere is that more important than in climate. We, there's mm-hmm. no time. We cannot, we cannot make a mistake and hope to fix it later. It's got to be right. It's got to happen. It's got to, it's got to happen the first time out of the gate, it, especially for climate. I think it's essential that these ideas get baked in. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, uh, fighting the good fight and, and, for, and for taking all this time to talk. Sure. Happy to do it. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right. Bye now. Bye.